Hello and welcome to the 21st episode of the Crystal Clear Watchmaking Podcast. I'm your host, Luke, here with a special guest, Darren from TM Tiffany Timepieces. How you doing, man? I'm good. How are you, Luke? I'm doing excellent. We couldn't have Jay here with us today. I was going to do another solo episode, but then you commented on one of my posts on Reddit and I looked into who you were and somebody worth talking to. So we're having you on today. Cool. I appreciate it. So do you want to tell the people what you do exactly? Uh, yeah. So I guess the best way that I would describe what I do is I'm a independent watchmaker, uh, primarily uh, machinist and dial maker. I would say I don't get too much into the micro mechanics and movement making, uh, but I mm-hmm. make uh, stainless steel watch cases, bezels, case backs, uh, buckles. I built my own rose engine to do uh, guilloche dials in German silver and fine silver. And uh, yeah, I, I make handmade watches here in my shop in Phoenix, Arizona. Phoenix, Arizona. You know what? I was thinking about this before. I had thought that there was somebody that was West Coast that did guilloche dials that had come across my reading at some point, and I've mentioned a few times in the show now, and I'm wondering, I've been saying California, but have I been mistaking it for you this whole time? No, you were probably thinking of uh, Josh Shapiro. So there's two guys making guilloche dials in in the United States? Uh, Three, if you count Roland Murphy from RGM. Ooh! Wow. Okay, we're we're thriving over here. I yeah. thought we it's a I thought we industry. had a little bit less. Yeah. So, the question. So you said you make the case. That makes me immediately wonder. Um, do you make the crown? Um, not yet. So I, I'm going to be experimenting with a technique where basically I take a stock crown because to make a screw down crown is really hard because it has an internal spring and uh, very difficult to machine. Yeah. So a technique that um, a fellow watchmaker actually here in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, taught me about was uh, you machine the stock crown. So I'm taking like generic Rolex crowns. I'll be machining Mm -hmm. them down a little bit smaller, and then I'll be machining a cap. So either stainless or bronze or whatever Uh, material inside, and then that gets pressed on. So you're basically using the, the generic Rolex for its internals. Exactly. Yeah, to be able to use the threaded crown tube or the case tube and then mm-hmm. the internals of the screw down makes it a lot easier. So I think that, you know, normally what we do is we'd say, oh, what watch are you wearing? What's your favorite brand? Stuff like that. But, you know, you have a lot to say that that is actually sort of just wasting your time. There's so much <laughs> more that we could be pulling out of that brain of yours. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So we're just going to skip all that. Everyone's just going to assume you're a wonderful guy with great taste. Okay. Well, that's a given. What we'll do instead is I'll ask you one question. This question might take literally the entire time to answer if we really drill down into it. Um, and it's simply, how do you make watch dial? step by step start to finish Mm. and you know you don't need to hand wave here if you have a have a step where you're just washing it off we're the type of people that want to hear about you washing a dial you know what i'm saying yeah (laughs) yeah so that's a pretty in-depth question and it really depends on what type of dial you're uh making and i think you covered it pretty well on your dial making episode um but thank you for me uh when I'm making guilloche dials. So there's a couple different materials that I've been working with. And um, what I started using was just brass, Mm -hmm. Um, but the color of the brass and brass, since it's predominantly copper is kind of gummy and it's a little bit harder to engrave. Uh, You don't get it clean and reflective of cuts as you do on other materials. Mm, Too soft. Yeah. It's a little bit too soft. So then I started, experimenting with a uh, material called German silver or nickel silver. Uh, Mm -hmm. And there's actually no silver in it. It's just because it has silver color. They they got me with that the first time that I saw it. I was like, oh, silver, cool. It took me a while to realize no silver. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that that material works really well because I can get it in really thin sheets. Um, 
and just cut out dial blanks with like a jeweler saw. Uh, and then I also use fine silver, so 99.9% fine silver. And that works really well because it's such a, a bright white metal and it can be work hardened. So when it's hardened, it can be really hard. And the harder it is, the cleaner the cuts come out, like I mentioned before. So mm -hmm. those are the two materials that I kind of bounce back and forth between uh, nickel silver and fine silver. And fine silver really isn't as expensive as a lot of people think. So enough to make like um, a dial blank is probably only like $8, something like that. That's how I feel like whenever I walk into Tiffany Tiffany's and I see these yeah. tiny little earrings and it's like $100 in silver. Like there's only 50 cents of silver there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, now you said that you cut out with a jeweler saw. So that's not how most, you know, big boys do it. They don't grab the old jeweler saw and start cutting a circle. <laughs> yeah. So w when you do that, obviously that's not going to be super clean on the edges. What do you do after that to get your final shape? Yeah, so I just cut out a rough blank. So when I get uh, nickel silver sheets, I'm getting like two foot by one foot sheets. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just cutting square blanks out with the jeweler saw. And then I'm doing my... Um, and engraving on those square blanks and then there's a later step where i machine it to be a perfect circle okay so this is coming later okay yeah. okay all right so you've got your blank cut out what happens next so i take the blank and i file down any rough edges that the jeweler saw left over and then on my uh, rose engine i have a four jaw independent chuck where i mount the work in and i machined an aluminum uh, it's called a glue chuck, basically. So it's just a super flat piece of aluminum that was machined as flat as I could get it. Mm -hmm. And then I I just super glue the dial blank onto the uh, piece of aluminum. And that gets it as flat as I need it. And then I actually take it and I block sand it. So I sand down any high points and make the um, surface super uniform. So when you're doing guilloche, the way that your depth of cut is controlled relies on having a very smooth surface, a uh, very even surface, so no like highs and lows. So it needs to be sanded completely flat. Okay. Um, and and uh, once, you've, once you've got it sanded, you've got it on your rose engine. Um, did we mention that you made your rose engine? Uh, I don't think so. Yeah, I, I built my own rose engine from scratch in my workshop. Now, had you ever seen one in operation, like, or used yeah. one, and then you used that, or did you just like look at videos of watchmakers using them and kind of reverse engineer how it must be? Yeah, I had never seen a rose engine in operation, and I had only seen one in person, and I didn't really know what it was at the time, so I didn't pay too much attention to it. But thinking back, I know that I saw one at uh, Cameron Weiss's shop in L.A. when I stopped by there one time when I lived in California. Uh, I believe that. <laughs> and, and so I had only seen one once before. When I kind of stumbled upon it, I was like, yeah, I, I need one of those. And I was looking around to purchase one, and there's this uh, machine reseller. I think they're in, like, Massachusetts or something like that and they price gouged and they, they had some rose engines for sale for like $25,000 that needed restoration and I was like yeah I, I can't do that uh, and so I decided to just tackle make my own and so I pulled a bunch of reference material so um, in George Daniels watchmaking book he has a chapter about uh, rose engine or engine turning he does I've I've read that book. It's a good yeah, book. <laughs> yeah, great reference material, especially when it comes to like grinding your guilloche cutters and, and all that information. Uh, and then there's a couple other books. So uh, Callie Shevlin, I think her name is, uh, wrote a book called Guilloche, and she talks about uh, rose engine operation and has some diagrams and stuff like that laid out, which was really helpful too. And then just watching YouTube videos. So Roger Smith has videos of him operating his rose engine and his straight line engine. So I kind of just watched those and dissected how his machine was working based on watching mm -hmm. videos and then just put together my own plans, mostly in my head and uh, put one together. It took probably like six months just working a couple hours every weekend. Only a couple hours every weekend for six months. That actually is not, that's actually a fast build. Yeah, it came together pretty quickly. Um, it required quite a bit of machining and fabricating, uh, but it was a great journey. Well, that is pretty darn impressive. So 
we we've now heard a little bit about this machine that you've taken your german silver plate you've hand sawed it out you've sanded it flat it's mounted it's ready to go then what happens yeah so i have it mounted in in the four jaw chuck and i get the the blank centered on the road engine, like on the spindle of the rose engine then i determine what pattern i want to engrave onto the um the dial blank and so I have a series of rosettes, and those are the pattern discs that are on the spindle of the rosette. So right now I have six, and they each have a different amplitude. So I have 24 wave, 48 wave, um, 60, 120, uh, 36, and 72. Mm -hmm. And so I choose which pattern disc I want to use to create uh, different patterns. So for the um, basket pattern that I post a lot of pictures on my Instagram about, um, I use the 60 wave rosette and so i'll set up that 60 wave rosette and then i have what's called a crossing wheel it's for phasing so the rosette are on a barrel that spin independently of the spindle so you can actually um there's a locking lever you can release the lock and turn those rosettes and so on that crossing wheel there's uh four gashes or four um detents that that locking lever will fit to that correspond mm -hmm. with spacing between each wave of the rosette if that makes sense it's kind of hard to uh, explain without uh, giving a visual representation no i'm getting it in my mind i think we we got some we got some very 3d minded people thinking yeah think. yeah yeah so i i have my uh, rosettes phased on the first uh detent on my crossing wheel and then I have a cross slide, so it moves my cutter from left to right. And my cutter is mounted on a linear rail, and so it's actually fed in by hand. So I move to the far left of the workpiece, and I mm -hmm. make my first cut. So the, the cutter is really two parts. So there's the cutter, which is a brake slide. Um, basically what it is is a uh, grooving tool for a lathe, uh, but a very small So the actual cutting head width is only 40 thousandths of an inch and then i grind that on uh, diamond discs so you don't use millimeters no <laughs> i think this is very american yeah. uh tooling that we're doing right now <laughs> yeah well i i'm a thought machinist uh, and i learned everything in inches so i do all my machining and everything in inches probably the only watchmaker who's machining everything in inches but uh, <laughs> yeah uh, even weiss is pretty swiss in his mindset i bet he uses metric yeah well he was swiss trained <laughs> and, and he worked in switzerland so right. i think that's kind of uh in his but i learned everything in inches so even my cases are basically an inch and a half which is roughly 38 millimeters so man i like that that feels more american yeah <laughs> Well, I think uh, everything that I do is kind of grassroots, so I'm self-taught in everything that I'm doing involving watches. So a lot of it is just figuring it out on my own. And so what made the most sense to me in, in my machining experience was inches, so that's just what I rolled with. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. So once you've, once you've turned this dial, I have a question. So this is completely what they call at most machining to my understanding is uh, subtractive manufacturing or something like that is what it's called. Right. Yeah. So if you subtract the wrong part of the dial, you can't add it back on. Right. So it's, it's a no mistakes type of game you're playing. Oh yeah. Yeah. So if you, if you mess up your phasing or your spacing between cuts, uh, it's scrap. You gotta throw that dial away and start with a new one. And if we're being super honest, how often does that happen? When I first started, when I first got the machine together, uh, pretty much every dial <laughs> that I made, <laughs> I made a mistake. And so it, it gets a lot easier. Uh, so obviously practice helps out a lot. So having done like my basket weave pattern a bunch, it's basically second nature on what changes I need to do. So how far I need to move my uh, compound table to move my cutter over where I need to phase on the uh, crossing wheel. Um, and it's for the basket weave uh, pattern dial, it's probably close to 100 cuts 
starting on the left and working towards the center. So 100 mm -hmm. opportunities to mess up the pattern. So what's, what's the current rejection rate? Are you just slamming them out? Everyone's a gem? Or are there still mistakes now and then? Everyone makes mistakes. Or are you perfect now? Oh, yeah, far from perfect. If anybody tells you that they are perfect at Guilloche, they're a liar. Don't believe them. <laughs> Nobody is perfect. It's a very manual process and, and lots of opportunities to make mistakes. So I'm not in full swing production on dials. I'm, I'm working on uh, my production of my first run of cases. So I'm making 20 watches and I'm working on the cases and bezels and case backs. So machining the stainless parts right now. So not in full right. swing production of the dials. So I, I can't give you like a good number of uh, the rejection rate. Um, gotcha, gotcha. Are you going to make the dials for those? Or are you just going to do the cases, get uh, source some dials uh, later? Oh, no, I'll be making the dials. Yeah, all hand guilloche dials. And are all of these watches already spoken for? I know a lot of people get excited. They buy them before the machining even starts. Is that sort of the deal? Or are these going to be for sale when they are complete? Yeah, so for the, uh, the first five are spoken for. Um, I'm not taking any pre-orders. There's no starter. I'm not taking anybody's money until I have a product to actually deliver into their hands. So they won't be all released at the same time. So I'll have my first one done probably in the next two to three weeks. Um, and that one's already spoken for. The second one is going to be a quote-unquote press piece. So that's going to go to some podcasters and YouTubers that I've made connections with. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, so they'll be released in so. Um, it's probably worth noting that I still work a full-time job, so everything that I'm doing in watchmaking is on weekends and in the evenings. So hopefully getting to a point where I can focus on watchmaking full-time if, if the market is really supportive of uh, the work that I'm doing. I feel like that's a common setup, though. Even like the most... Even a lot of the biggest podcasters are still working their 9-to-5s and then podcasting when they can. Yeah. So once you've got this guilloche, now we've got a beautiful circular guilloche on a square piece of uh, German silver. How do we how do we fix that? Yeah, so then I would take the uh, dial blank and I would release it from the glue chuck. So I just throw it in a cup with some acetone to let the glue dissolve. I want to avoid prying on the dial. I don't want to give any distortion to the dial. I just want to just pop off and stay as flat as I glued it on there. So I let it soak mm -hmm. in the acetone and loosen up and uh, slowly peel it up with like a razor blade and get it off of that glue chuck. Then the real danger <laughs> comes into play when, when working with dials and talking about rejection rate. So then I need to move over to my uh, rotary table on my milling machine. And so I need first drill the center hole Mm -hmm. So I'll drill out the center hole where the uh, hands and the post will come through. And then I need to flip the dial over. So now it's face down. Yoshi is face down. And it's bolted onto an uh, aluminum fixture that I made for the dial blanks. Uh, and then I need to locate and just spot drill. So basically just peck with um, like a one and a half millimeter drill where the dial feet will be soldered to. Mm -hmm. So I locate the dial feet based on the movement that I'm using. And then I switch over to a end mill. And in the rotary table, I uh, calculate how far I need to advance from the rotary table and basically just plunge the end mill down and turn the rotary table to cut the dial blank out from its square stock. And so that'll leave me with a perfect circle for a dial. So when you're measuring where the feet are going to go, do you like take a movement and then literally measure or do you go and find the spec sheets and then look at those to decide where the feet are going to go or how do you know exactly where the feet are going to go because if you're like half a millimeter off you're way off yeah <laughs> you know yeah so i i just referenced the spec sheets so for the watches that i'm producing i'm using at a 2892s Okay, classic. And the 2892 and the 2824 and the 2801 all have the same dial feet position, so the dials are interchangeable. So I know mm -hmm. how far to advance. So I look at the schematics, and then I trans because those are all in millimeters, so I translate those to inches because all my machining equipment is in inch scales and my digital readout is in inches, so I translate it to inches. Uh, <laughs> and then I so locate American. those dial feet. Yep. <laughs> And what do you make your dial feet out of? 
Uh, generally, it's just copper wire. Gotcha. And, and it's gotcha. silver soldered to the back of the dial. And is that real silver this time? Uh, there is real silver in silver solder. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So here here's my next question. So have you have you done uh, machining of indices before? Because those are little guys. That seems like pretty tough. Yeah, so most indices, if we're talking like applied indices, are, mm -hmm. I guess you would call, I think the term is like swedged, swaged, something like that. Basically like forged. So you'll take uh, gold wire, you'll put it in a, uh, a die, and then you'll stamp them out. And so it'll form the actual indice as well as the little locating feet that are on the back side of it. Oh, I love that. I love that somebody knows the answer to that question because <laughs> I've wondered how that's done exactly. Yeah. Well, full circle, uh, I was talking with Josh Shapiro about it on Instagram about making indices, and he sent me a article. I think it was uh, from Hamilton when they were based in, where were they, Lancaster or something like that, somewhere in yeah, yep, the That sounds right. Uh, yeah. And their lead dial maker, there's somebody uh, wrote a book and actually describes the process and he sent it over to me an email. I'll see if I can dig it up and I can share it with you if you're interested in reading it. Oh, that That is so awesome. Because I feel like the things that you never, ever, ever hear about is how indices and hands are made. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of secrecy in uh, part manufacturing. That's why when you look at the Swiss watch industry, there's predominant dial manufacturers, predominant hand manufacturers, and they just don't like to share secrets. So when you can figure something out, it definitely feels good. So we talked about materials a little bit. So we've talked about German silver. You said bronze, not fun to play with. Uh, brass. Brass, not fun to play with. Sorry. Yeah. So in that case... Uh, are there any other materials that you're interested in the future? I've seen people do like, oh, it's gold, and then we plate it with rhodium, stuff like that. Yeah. So when you when you see a silver dial, like um, a briguet with a silver dial, what they actually do, and this is, kind of blows my mind, they do the engine turning on uh, gold, so like 18 karat gold, and then they mm -hmm. silver plate the gold. So it's not even rhodium, it's silver plated. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Which Silver's blows probably, my mind that you would... I don't know, shines better? I guess. I mean, you can't get like a silver tone gold. You can get gray gold, or you can work with platinum or rhodium plating. But uh, silver, fine silver, just turns so well when you're doing guilloche. I, I mm. can't wrap my head around why they don't just use silver. I'm sure there's a reason, but I don't know it. Maybe gold just feels fancier when you're trying to sell a watch. Maybe. Yeah, I guess. If you're just trying to up the gold content in your watch. Yeah, just market forces, you know, luxury yeah. items. Yeah, possibly. So I haven't done any experimenting with gold, but I, I definitely want to try it out. So I'll probably pick up some uh, small sheets of red gold and yellow gold and just try turning it. It would probably act a lot like silver. Where it would need to be work hardened a bit before it would turn well, but definitely want to try that out. Yeah, I'm I'm assuming that when you when you turn gold, you'll have a little basket underneath picking up yeah. all the little shavings. Oh yeah, definitely. So, I'm going to show you a little thing on Skype cuz you just talked about Breguet. So, I wanted to ask about this. Um I know everyone's at different parts in their journey, but the thing that I've wondered about with these dials is they've got multiple different guilloche patterns on the same so yeah i don't know if for example on this one here we've got one pattern for the majority of the dial and then the sub seconds gets its own different pattern do you think that this sub seconds was like punched out and then that was turned separately no. or do you have any idea how this is done yeah so this is done on one single blank so there's actually three patterns at play here. So starting on the, the far left at nine o'clock. So you see the uh, kind of rippling bordering. Mm, yep, see that? Yep. So that's called, that's a process called pumping and it's done on a rose engine. So on a rose engine, generally your rosettes will oscillate your spindle left and right. But most rose engines will have a spring on the spindle 
and rosettes that actually push the spindle forward. So you fix your cutter in place and then turning on those rosettes. And so the workpiece is actually diving in and out of the cutter and is cutting that mm -hmm. wave in three dimensions. So that's how they're creating the bordering there. That's done by pumping on the rose engine. And so that's okay. how they're breaking up between the patterns. So then we can see after the chapter ring, it does another pumping ring, and then it goes into the uh, uh, Parisian cloud or cloud de Paris, whatever it's called. And that's done on a straight line engine. So that is just a series of straight cuts in one direction, and then they will rotate it 45 degrees. So there's a, uh, a worm wheel on the straight line engine. So they make all those series of cuts in one direction, and then they phase it by 45 degrees, and then make cuts going the opposite way. So it's just overlapping cuts at 45 degrees that create those little uh, pyramid shapes on the dial. Gotcha, gotcha. And then moving into the subseconds, there's another pumping ring there. So the pumping is actually done because it cuts deeper than the normal guilloche. And so you can uh, actually so you can break up a differentiate pattern. the subdial from yeah. the pattern you just did. Okay. Yeah. So the the pumping is actually one of the final steps. So they would probably cut the uh, the pyramid shapes first on the straight line engine. Then they would move that blank over. Uh, actually, no. So they the uh, the pyramid shapes on the straight line engine, and then they would move down to the basket weave pattern that is in the subseconds. So they would cut that in the same step. So the uh, the chapter ring around the subseconds is probably applied. So that's probably a separate material. So they would ah, okay. they would machine a groove in there that breaks the pattern. So all the guilloche work on the straight line engine is done at the same time, and then they move it over to the rose engine and do the pumping, and then they apply the um, the circular grained chapter ring and index ring. Do you think that all of the circular grained rings on this dial are applied afterwards? Um most likely i know that we just have one image and we're <laughs> yeah there, there's a limited amount that you can sort of glean but just curious because these dials are extremely intricate let's say. oh yeah and so i feel like they've got a lot of secrets to tell me yeah so have you experimented with doing um two types of guiche on one dial stuff like this yet yeah definitely so right now i only have my rose engine uh, built, but I am building a straight line engine to be able to do linear patterns uh, so on the, that brigade. Uh, so I have done multiple uh, circular patterns on one dial, and so it, it actually helps out when you only have a rose engine, because when you're doing the guilloche, your amplitude, so the amount that your headstock is oscillating left and right based on the rosette that you're running, doesn't mm -hmm. change as you get closer to the center. So your amplitude is the same whether you're right at the center hole or you're very far left on the dial. And so it gets really hard to read, especially complex patterns, as you get towards the center because they just start to overlap and get kind of blown out and distorted. Gotcha. That makes sense. So I will do an intricate pattern around the outside border. So I'll do like a, a basket weave around the outside and then about halfway towards the center dial i'll switch to either just uh straight line so i'll run the rose engine with no rosette so the headstock is fixed and so it's just a clean circular pattern that will have even spacing so you'll see that on a lot of um, sub dials where it's just the concentric rings working towards the center post of that seconds hand mm -hmm. so that helps to clean it up because that doesn't distort at all so you can get towards the center really well and it finishes it really well or you can switch to a higher amplitude rosette, so the spacing between the peaks of the rosette are further apart, which has less distortion as it gets towards the center. Okay, that makes sense. Now, I had seen you post an image of your rosettes, and they're made out of acrylic. Is that me remembering correctly? That's right. Yeah, I had them. So I first machined my rosettes out of aluminum, and it just wasn't mm -hmm. good material for it. It was a little bit too soft, uh, and so it just wasn't good. So acrylic is quite a bit harder than aluminum, and I had them, uh, so I designed them in Fusion 360, and then I had somebody laser cut them for me, and then I had to kind of finish them off, because the laser cutter leaves some distortion, particularly where the laser starts and stops, so I had to sand and polish those little sections out, because every imperfection in your rosette will translate onto your workpiece. 
Right. Um, so, is there a reason that those rosettes aren't made out of, for example, steel? Because when people who are like collectors, for example, think of acrylic, they think, oh, that's pretty soft. I use my poly watch. I can buff out scratches and stuff, so it's not like super resistant or whatever. Um, when you're talking about hardness, it doesn't really translate into durability, if that makes sense. So hardness is referring to how unlikely it is to deflect. So the aluminum was actually pressing in on the peaks of the rosette at a different rate for each peak. Uh, the acrylic is harder, as in it's being run on a, um, a ball bearing is my touch piece. Okay. And so it, it's less likely to deform under that. It'll scratch really easily. It'll scratch easier than a lot of materials, but overall hardness is higher. Okay, that makes sense. Generally, if you look at antique rose engines, the rosettes are made out of bronze, which is a really good material. It's used in bearings and a lot of applications. Okay, okay. Now, as you said, you're making cases, which is a whole different beast. Most people don't make multiple things. You know, they make movements, they make cases, they make dials, but they only do one of the three. So <laughs> you're, you're stretching yourself here. Is, uh, so when you make a case, what parts of that machining were surprisingly difficult? Uh, all of them. Is that an answer? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> There's just so many steps. Especially when you're doing it in inches. <laughs> well, I think another differentiator for the process that I'm doing is I'm doing everything manually, so I don't have any CNC equipment in my shop. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. every machining step that I'm doing requires me to either create a fixture or a jig to set up my work, and every cut is one cut, so I'm not making multiple machining operations in one setup. So it's just a lot of math and trigonometry and figuring out how to build jigs and how to fixture everything so that the cuts that I'm making are accurate and repeatable. So the reason I'm doing a production run of 20 watches instead of making one watch at a time is it basically takes the same time to make one watch as it does to make 20 watches the way that I'm doing it, because I'll set up the jig and the fixture. I'll put my first case blank in, do that machining operation, then swap the next case blank in, do this machining operation rather than taking up and tearing down for every single case. Right. So you're like a one man assembly line. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm looking for a higher level of vertical integration as well. So realistically, I want to make in-house by myself every part of the watch that you can see and interact with. So I picked up the pantograph milling engraving machine that I posted on Instagram. I made a YouTube video about it as well. So I'm going to be using that to attempt to make hands, probably not in this first production run, but I'm going to learn how to make hands. I'm going to be able to make the, the crown caps. Uh, they'll go stock screw down crowns. So I want everything that a customer or a collector look at and interact with to be handmade in my workshop. The movements, I'm not interested in getting into learning how to make a movement um, but we'll see what the future holds in, in terms of that either figuring it out or bringing somebody in who's really passionate about that and working together on that project i mean if you make the case the dial the hands the crown and the movement that is that's too much man i know <laughs> <laughs> that's where you hear of guys and it's like it took me a year I have this one watch, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's a very tough life. So you said that you've got um, you've got the straight cutting um, rose engine that you're working on? Yeah, the straight line engine. Yeah, so that... Okay, rose engine means that it makes circular cuts. Is that the deal? Pretty much, yeah, pretty much. Okay, so you're working on that. Uh, at the same time now... You've got other things distracting your focus, making cases, making all sorts. So how soon can we actually expect to see a uh, straight cut guilloche coming out of the workshop? Yeah, so really what was slowing me down was waiting on some parts that were backordered. So I'm repurposing some machining equipment parts. So a column from a um, benchtop milling machine, which is going to 
be like the vertical slide for how the actual uh, workpiece is moving up and down. Uh, so that finally mm-hmm. came in, and I've been talking with a couple predominant engine turners and um, machinists who operate straight line engines on how their machines work, and they're sending me a bunch of pictures. So I'm, I'm getting it all pieced together in my head. And so I have most of the parts that I need now, uh, and it's just going to come down to finding time to machine a lot of the parts that I need to actually fabricate. Uh, so it's not top priority. I don't need it to complete this first production run, um, but I want to have it done soon. So I, I don't have a, a strict deadline to, to get the straight line engine done, but I want it done soon. So <laughs> we'll kind of see how that balances out with everything. Okay. Now, when people talk about cases, they say, oh, it's a two-part case. It's a three-part case. Mm-hmm. Um, that type of thing. Is yours a three-part case? Does this bezel pop off and the back comes off and then there's the middle piece, so it's three parts? Is that how it works? Yeah, pretty much. So the way that I decided to manufacture my cases, it, the case body, so the center part, is threaded mm-hmm. threaded all the way through. And then the bezel actually screws onto the top and the case back screws into oh. the back. So it makes for easier interchangeability of parts if if I needed to make a new bezel and replace a bezel. And it also helps out with water resistance. So I Mm -hmm. gasket both the front, the top and the bottom, the bezel and the case back, and screw those down to whatever torque specs I determine based on some water resistance testing. I have literally never seen a screw down bezel. Is that as unusual as I want to say that it is? Yeah, so when I started or when I determined that I was going to go that route, just based on kind of bouncing ideas around in my head, I didn't know of anybody else who was doing it or had ever done it. But after reading yeah. some articles, um, I believe, and I'm not even positive because I, I haven't seen one taken apart, but I think the Vacheron Constantine 222, like the very first overseas model from the 70s, I think okay. that has a screw down bezel, but I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. Suffice it to say, it is a pretty unusual idea. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, it's it just requires a lot more steps. So usually when you look at um, a watch case, the bezel is either machined into the case body or it's just a, uh, a shelf or like a ring that's put in place to press fit a bezel on where the bezel mm-hmm. isn't really contributing to water resistance other than putting pressure on the crystal. Um, it's just more machining steps, and I think that's why... Other manufacturers don't do it, but for me, because I'm single point threading, if you're familiar with any machining operations. I'm not. I'm not a machinist, so tell, tell us about what that means. So there's a couple ways to cut threads internally. So you can use uh, tap. So that's pretty common, right? If you have like a quarter 20 bolt, you need to bolt into something. You would drill a certain size hole and then run your tap and tap the threads into that hole. Another way on the lathe to do it is... The lathe is set up with um, gears. Mine has a quick change gear set where I can change between different thread pitches. And again, everything's in inches, so it's all uh, per inch. Mm -hmm. So I have my lathe set up to run uh, 40 threads per inch. So it's a super, super fine thread. So because the parts are so small, uh, I'm able to get more thread engagement to be able to provide a more positive um, threading feel and... uh, apply more threading pressure. So when it's screwed down, it, it can screw down tighter. So I'm running threads all the way through the case body and just on a manual lay, this is a whole lot easier. On a CNC, you can get your threads to stop at a certain point where just your case back will thread in and then your bezel can press in or whatever you want the other operation to be on the other side. But for me, it's just mm-hmm. a whole lot easier and more repeatable to thread all the way through the case body. So do they share one gasket in between both of them, where both of them are screwing towards the center and there's just one gasket there? Is that how it works? Uh, no, it'll be one gasket per side. So where there's a flange on the backside of the bezel where the threads end and the bezel, okay. like the protrusion starts, and same thing with the case back, I'm running uh, silicone O-rings as gaskets front and back. Gotcha. And I have to say, your case design... Very pretty. Big fan. Thanks. (laughs) And I can see why you'd want... I mean, you spend so much time on the dial. I feel like 
if I were you, I'd just feel so much more secure instead of just snapping on the front, screwing it down. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I would say? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> now, when I'm looking at your Giache dials, one of them here, it's purple. How did that come to be? How, how do you do that? Yeah, so after I finish all the engine turning and the machining operations on the dial, I will uh, apply color to it. So a little background on me. When I was in high school, a senior in high school, I apprenticed at a uh, custom paint and body shop and we restored hot rods and built low riders and stuff like that. Oh, so, that's awesome. Yeah. And so that's where I learned a lot of fabrication, like welding and just general fabrication. But I also learned to paint. And so I also paint cars. And I kind of pulled from that history in terms of how to apply cool colors onto dial. So a lot of manufacturers use anodizing, plating, stuff like that. I kind of pulled into my automotive refinishing history and I use a candy paint. So it's an aniline dye and it's actually the kind of candy paint that you would see on like a, a low rider, like a West coast low rider that you would spray over uh, <laughs> okay. a silver metallic. And so it's a translucent dye that is available in any color and you can control the color, the tone, based on the number of coats that you spray and how much you thin it out. And you can actually mix custom colors with uh, the separate candy colors. Uh, and then I apply a clear lacquer over it to kind of lock it in and protect it. And it's UV stable. I mean, it's meant for cars that are in the sun 24 seven. So right, right, right. It's really, yeah, that makes perfect sense. really durable, really controllable. Uh, and you don't, if you mess up, you just throw it in some acetone or lacquer thinner, take a soft bristle brush and scrub it off and restart. So that's exactly what I was going to ask. I was yeah. like, this must be reversible because <laughs> yeah, if, if you mess up, you don't want to have to like do a whole nother engine turning process so that you can paint again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot, you can get uh, enamel-esque appearance from it without the mm -hmm. risk of destroying your work with enamel. But you don't just do enamel-esque, do you? You do literal enamel these days, or at least some attempts. That's right. Yeah, so I, in order to get better and kind of hone my guillotine skills, I decided to make just a couple pieces of jewelry. So it started out as a Christmas present project for like the ladies in my family. So I made mm -hmm. uh, some pendants. So they're fine silver pendants that I turned on the Rose engine and enameled. And then I also made some uh, Sterling Silver Bunny clips for my dad and grandpa uh, for Christmas last year just to get better. And if I mess them up, it's for family, whatever. You, you get what you pay for, right? So kind of just practicing, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. practicing my skills. Take what you like. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then I, I just was intrigued by enamel and I uh, decided to try it out. And so I first started uh, by torch firing. So with a propane torch firing the enamel and some, oh my of, some of it turned out okay. Some of it turned out pretty awfully because it's really hard to control your temperature. Right. Like an oven's like relatively even. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the torch is pretty one tool. <laughs> yeah. So I, I got some decent results and some less than spectacular results. Uh, but I wanted to kind of take it a little bit further. So I bought a kiln from a company called Rio Grande, which is in New Mexico, and they sell like jewelry, jewelry and enameling supplies and stuff like that. So I got okay. the kiln, and uh, I've just been experimenting with kiln-fired enamel, and it comes out a whole lot better than torch-fired enamel, <laughs> needless torch to say. But uh, I had literally not heard of that before. I just assumed everyone used a kiln. <laughs> yes, yeah, so you, you can torch fire it. It's just... Uh, very risky. So yeah, I've been uh, just experimenting with enameling on fine silver and sterling silver and just trying to get that process down. Eventually, I would like to be able to make some enamel guilloche dials for watches. Uh, mm -hmm. There's just such a high scrap rate when you're looking at both doing guilloche and enameling. So it's just kind of compounding risk in making those dials. So that's not something that's going to be offered in this first production run, but down the line, if somebody's willing to pay for the risk that's associated with creating that process, then it's definitely something I'm going to, I'm going to try out. You're saying that you don't want to hand turn 10 dials and then end up throwing away nine of them because of the, <laughs> uh, process. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs>
when you did the jewelry for your for your family, I'm just curious, how did they react to that? Because in women's jewelry these days, guilloche is like not a thing. It's a lot about like a brand name uh, and stuff like that. You know, it's not really about these old yeah. high skill techniques anymore. Yeah. So, I mean, they were stoked. They had known about what I was doing in the past, uh, but it was a surprise to give them these presents. So they were all super excited about them. Uh, and I actually, so I, I've made some friends through like the Arizona watch scene. And uh, one of the guys in the group uh, reached out just before Valentine's day, because I had shown him some of the stuff that I was working, jewelry pieces that I was working on. And he uh, commissioned a pendant for his girlfriend for Valentine's day. And so mm-hmm. this was like even more risk. <laughs> and it was kind of a, a challenge to figure out. It took a couple of attempts to get it right. So I took a uh, fine silver disc and I actually guilloched both sides with matching patterns. So it's dual sided. And then I applied clear enamel onto both sides. Uh, so just doubling the amount of work and doubling the amount of risk. Uh, but <laughs> The, the second the first attempt it didn't turn out so well um, but the second attempt I kind of figured out what had went wrong and corrected it and it turned out pretty awesome and so he was so stoked he um, he gave it to her a little bit early and she was so excited and he's a he's a pretty predominant watch collector in in Arizona and he took it to one of the um, local jewelers and watch dealers here and showed it to them mm-hmm. they were super excited about it because they uh, they have they understand yeah exactly and so he introduced me to them at an event. And so I'm, I'm planning on swinging by there and, and chatting with them a little bit more to see if we could kind of work together in the future on some projects. That is awesome. So these 20 watches, how soon are they going to be in existence? Yeah. So the first one should be done. I'm hoping like in the next three weeks kind of depends on my work schedule and any travel that I have coming up. Um, so hoping really aiming for the next three weeks to have that first watch done. And that one's already spoken for and will be sold as soon as it's done. Uh, and then if I can make the transition after that point to watchmaking full time, and then I'll be producing them a whole lot faster if I'm able to focus on it, you know, 40 hours plus a week rather than when I have the opportunity to work on it in the garage. Right. Right. Now, is this, on the Instagram, which we're gonna we're gonna post and everything, um, you've got a purple dialed watch that I mentioned before. Is that the is that the case that is uh, gonna be used for this run of twenty? Yeah, so that's uh, the prototype. I actually have it on right now. So that's the first prototype. So the very first, it's actually the second watch I've ever made, and so. Um, The first one was done only on a milling machine, so I didn't have a lathe, so I didn't have the ability to cut threads and stuff like that. And so when Mm -hmm. I I moved back to Phoenix and I got the lathe and a whole new opportunity in in terms of machining, I changed up my design. And so this was the first attempt at making the sandwich case where the bezel screws on and the case back screws on into the fully threaded case body. So Mm -hmm. it was really the uh, prototype. And I was kind of building out some fixtures as I was producing this prototype to be able to make a production run. So they're all based off of this prototype, uh, but I've made a couple changes. So the uh, lug-to-lug distance is shortened a little bit, so it's a little bit less long. For the small wrist dudes? Yeah. Uh, And then the the crown is going to be a little bit different. It's going to be running a, a bigger crown. It does look just a touch smaller than I'd expect on a on a watch that size. Yeah. Well, the difficulty comes into how thin the watch is. So this prototype is just a little bit over eight and a half millimeters thick. So that's pretty thin. Yeah, it's super thin. And so the the case body, again, in inches, is only two hundred thousandths of an inch thick. And so I need to find <laughs> I needed to find a crown that would kind of fit with those dimensions. So I'm working with a different crown that will sit a little bit a little bit more proud of the case and be able to get a little bit bigger and without kind of cutting into the bezel in the case back if that makes sense it does make sense man that is pretty thin for a hand machined yeah you know first run watch you know i'm used to seeing people producing some pretty chunky boys 
Yeah, I, I've just never been a fan of really thick watches. That they just don't wear well to me, especially when I was wearing more business attire suits and stuff like that. It just doesn't fit well under the cuff and, and stuff like that. So I wanted something that's sporty, but could be used in like a dressy application. So the prototype's on a rubber band, uh, just because I want to be able to abuse it and like put it in water and not destroy a leather strap. The production ones mm-hmm. will be on handmade leather straps. So there's a strap maker uh, 30 minutes south of me in Mesa who actually works with a lot of independents. Um, and she's going to be making the straps for the production watches. So everything that you interact with will be handmade in Arizona, which is, I think is a pretty cool like curation of the artist's inabilities of, of the state that I live in. That's awesome. And then the beating heart of the thing is going to be Swiss. Yep. Yeah. So, um, Swiss made, uh, top grade at a 2892s. But you're not going to put Swiss movement on the dial, are you? No, no, I can put anything <laughs> on the dial other than chapter ring. And maybe my logo, I'm still working through some logo designs, uh, but maybe put that at 12 o'clock. Are you putting anything on the back of the watch? Yeah. Stats. Yeah, so uh, I'll be doing some engraving. So the watch will be serialized, um, okay. 01 through 20. Uh, and then just the, my brand. Um, I don't know if I'm going to publish like water resistance spec because I don't know like what kind of certifications and stuff you need to actually mm-hmm. provide ratings. Um, but I want them to be able to be water resistant to the point where you can like jump in a pool at least wash your hands yeah exactly oh jump in the pool okay yeah that's another little step up yeah so i mean at least i would want them to be like 30 meters water resistant like in terms of actual water resistance not like dust resistant crown water resistant (laughs) i mean like being able to like swim down touch the bottom of a pool or whatever but i don't want i'm not expecting people go like diving it's definitely not a dive watch so yeah, I don't think you've got the loomed markers and everything going on there. <laughs> yeah. So, as someone who is not a watch machinist or salesman or anything like that, just like when I had my previous guest on, I'll, I'll tell you how to run your business, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm listening. So, I feel like when you have watches like yours, you know the customer before the watch is even made in, in these early ones and stuff. I I personally believe that the the stuff where you engrave like, oh, stainless steel, uh, sapphire crystal, all that stuff on the back, your people are at such a, a high level of consumer. They don't need to be told those things. They know yeah. all of those stats on every watch that they own, you know? Yeah. So just the more clean, the better. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's why less is more. So just the brand, the serial number, and I don't really know what else I would even put on there. I might do some act- some actual uh, like bordering around the case back uh, with the Rose engine. I was experimenting oh, with it. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, I, I can actually <laughs> cut the, the stainless on the Rose engine because I'm using a carbide cutter. Uh, so I might do a little bit of bordering, a little bit of decoration. Um Another thing that I'm probably going to experiment with, and a couple of them might come with it, is uh, I picked up a spare rotor for a 2892, just a blank rotor that I'm going to do some engine turning on. Nice. And then throw like a just a sapphire case back on that watch, so it'll make it a little bit thicker, but I think it'll be kind of cool if if I can pull it off. So I'll experiment. Well, you're starting off so thin. Yeah. You've got some. You've got some room to move. Oh yeah. Sure. Yeah. Man, I love hearing that kind of stuff. This is a man who cares, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. I mean, the way that I phrase it is, I'm making 20 of my favorite watches, and if other people like them enough to pay for them, then that's cool. But I'm doing it for me, first and foremost. And if other people want to participate, then that's awesome, too. So is price something that is publicly discussed at this time? Yeah. Yeah. So the uh, the price for this first production run is going to, start out at like 4000 per watch. That is actually quite low. Yeah, you know, I'm trying to pack as much value as I can uh, because I, I understand that the people who are going to be purchasing watches are 
ultimately taking a risk in buying a watch from somebody who isn't known. You know, some so, guy in Arizona. Yeah, some guy who's <laughs> hand making watches in his garage. You know, and and so there's a level of risk associated with that, I guess. Uh, I mean, I stand behind every product that I'm going to produce. So, and I want to have a personal connection with everybody who buys a watch. So I think that's another thing that kind of differentiates me is it's the actual person who's making the timepiece who is selling it to you and talking with you. And you have, I'll give them my cell phone number if they have any problems. They can call me, and I'm happy to to take care of any product and after sales and stuff like that. So I really want to make people feel comfortable with the product that I'm putting out there. And that's why I said, I'm not taking anybody's money up front. Uh, if I don't have a product to give you, I'm not taking a dollar from you. So uh, I want people to hold it, try the watch on their wrist, wear it around, make sure that they love it before they really um, commit and, and give me any funds. So you're saying you're letting them walk out of your garage and just wear it for a few days out of your sight well, before deciding to buy it? <laughs> I don't know about that. I think it depends on the individual and how well I know them. But yeah, I mean, that's why I'm doing that, that sending that press piece out there for people to just try out for a week, you know, and, and share their honest opinions about it and kind of help me spread the word and, and promote as much as I can. And that's kind of the, uh, the ethos is I want to spend X amount of months a year working on production and then... Uh, other parts of the year, I just want to travel, go to different watch club events, red bar events, do a bit of PR. With people. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and just meet cool people and show them what I'm working on. And hopefully they're excited about it too. And that's how I make customers, you know, that sounds awesome. Now you say, I want to have something on their wrist before taking their money, except for these first five watches. Those people get an exception for some reason. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I haven't taken anybody's money yet, so. Oh, okay, okay. So yeah. they, they have just told you, oh, yeah, I'm definitely yeah. good for it, buddy, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So my question is, let's say guy's got the watch on his wrist, okay? And then he's like, man, if only this dial were blue. Because it's already done. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Is that something that you'd be like, well, I can just dump that dial in acetone and <laughs> recolor it? Um, you know, if, if people are looking for something specific and I haven't finished pr production yet, I'm happy to work with people. Like if they w really want a blue dial or a green dial, as long as I think it's awesome, you know, I'm not going to make a watch that I think is ugly because somebody else wants to pay for it. <laughs> and I'm just not going to sure, do it. Yeah. So if I think it's a cool idea and I think it can be well executed, uh, then I'm happy to, to work with somebody who wants to kind of work on something a little bit more um unique or customized so the way that i'm approaching production not every watch no watch is going to be identical to the other one in terms of the patterning on the dial the way that the chapter ring is made um coloring the color combination between the dial and the strap so they're really all going to be unique in a sense okay and if somebody wants something particular then i'm happy to work with them on that so it's almost not really a first run of a series because they're all going to be a little bit different. You know, 06 and 07 are going to be, they're going to have basically the same case and all, all this stuff inside might yep. be a little bit different. Yeah, exactly. So for the things that require fixturing and a lot of manual machining, like the case, the bezel, the case back, those are all mm -hmm. going to be the same. But we'll play with the dial in the hand. Yeah, things stuff. that have to be made one at a time, like mm -hmm. dial and painting the dial and stuff like that, that can be customized because it's not taking additional time to do it differently, if that makes sense. So if someone's really into this, they look at your Instagram and see this, they should contact you before these 20 watches are made if they've got an idea for their their Grail watch that that you could make. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, unbelievably, unbelievably, we've been talking for an hour. I know. Time flies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is there anything that you'd like to say to the people out there? Yeah. Um, check out my Instagram if you're uh, if you're not following already. It's at dmtiffany.timepieces on Instagram. I recently started a YouTube channel where I'm documenting some of the... Uh, machines that I'm using and some of the processes that I've developed to create parts for my watches. And I'm actually doing a, a build series on 
building my straight line engine from scratch. Uh, so if anybody is so inclined and has the uh, machining and manufacturing, fabricating skills to do so, uh, follow along, build your own straight line engine. Uh, yeah, I just want to connect with the uh, watch community. So if anybody has any really cool events coming up this year, some somewhere in the United States, uh, let me know about them and I'll see what I can do to, to make it out to some watch events and kind of bring some of the stuff I'm working on and show it to people and just network with some people in, in the watch community in, in the United States. And I have to, I have to vouch for you here. Of course, we wouldn't have you on if you weren't amazing, but the Instagram, excellent. The YouTube for people like me, even more excellent getting to, to watch these machines run and everything. It's truly a joy seeing how the, uh, how the soup is made that's not the right phrase what's the right <laughs> phrase <laughs> I don't know. how the sausage is made <laughs> that's the phrase seeing how the sausage is made um it's really really fascinating so i would suggest the subscribe on youtube as well um it's been excellent having you on really illuminating us and as you go forward we might have you back on again to explain these new techniques that you're you're wading into and illuminating illuminating everyone as to how that's done. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate the uh, the invite and taking the time to chat with me, Luke. Yeah, no problem at all. It's uh, our honor. So we'll see everyone next week. We'll continue to discuss gears, springs, oils, watches, brands, all things watches and watchmaking. <laughs>